One question that I think a Calvinist would have would be, well, let me just word it in sort of the cliche uh, uh, way that it so often is. You know, why did you choose Jesus when your neighbor doesn't? It's just your your choice then is what saves you. You know, your choice meets. You're just better. You're better than your neighbor. That, you know, your neighbor that doesn't choose God, that continues in sin. Pelagius actually wrote and I think it's to Pope Innocent the First. You should read those because Pelagius is actually arguing that he does not believe what Augustine is accusing him of. That's interesting. One thing that stood out to me, <clears throat> there are several questions that popped in my mind when both of you were sharing, but one, one thing that stood out to me was how both of you emphasized, it seemed like a very, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seemed like a quite significant moment in your embracing of Calvinism, internalizing it in a more personal uh, uh, way. It, it seemed like there was an involvement of a strong figure a, a, a strong, yep. prominent person in your life who you encounter, who you who came across, and and it was almost as uh, like this. Oh well, if this person, this person, look at how they present it. Look at look at the strength behind how they make their arguments, and uh, and so for you, Josh, it was Vody Bacham. For you, Tyler, it was James White. Um, and so, again, correct me if I'm wrong there, but it just my initial impression from both of you sharing was that that played those figures played like a, a a pretty significant role. Or how would you would you say that's accurate that they played a, a pretty prominent role in in your like embracing Calvinism? So for me, anyway, it wasn't James White that played the role for embracing Calvinism. It was the guy that, that ended up leading me to the Lord, uh, Alpha Gibson. Because here's the thing, to have someone, and especially as a young, impressionable person, yes. I mean, I don't care what what we like to say or, or, or how how good we think ourselves are, whenever you're first coming to Christianity, you're impressionable, period, on the subject. I was, mm -hmm. Josh was, everybody that I've talked to that are being honest was, right? And for someone in that authoritative role, as I'm ask, asking, you know, who questions, I am, you know, and he's answering like he, this guy, you, you got to understand, Hoot, this guy has a entire like it's like five, six feet long. I've got it right over there, actually. Uh, maybe, maybe some other time I can show you. But it's this chart, and he's got Revelation like literally mapped out on this five to six foot piece of paper, right? And so for someone like that, knowing exactly where you where where you you're coming from because they've been there themselves, right? Knowing how to answer your questions, showing you that, you know, these things are scriptural, scriptural, it really does make an impression, especially yeah. on a young believer. Uh so because who it's was impressive. that guy for me? It's very much impressive, absolutely, to, to have someone just flip to a scripture and say, this is your problem, here's the scripture for it, spin it in a Calvinistic way, like, you don't know how to refute it, you don't, you don't even, you're not even thinking about refuting it at that time. All you're seeking is, what does scripture say? Because yeah. if you're really saved, I really believe that you want to consume God's word, and to have someone teaching you what God's word is from a Calvinistic lens is very impressionable. I don't know how much 
time you guys have left, the, the last thing I thought might be fun to do was to to put on the Calvinist hat in a sense and just throw a couple questions at you and oh, just kind of see. I thought I had a hat. What happens? <laughs> I thought I actually had a Calvinist hat. I, I do. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm the only one with a hat. I'm the only one with a hat. It's all good. Yeah, I'm so fine you guys with it, Jordan. Have- I've, got, I've, got, I've got all day. So Okay. Okay, well, uh, let me just ask... Let me just ask this. Um, so, so here, here's here's one. I would just like to get your guys' thoughts on this one. So, um, yeah. we don't have to turn there, but Romans eight and First Corinthians two. Uh, uh, those who are in the flesh cannot please God, and you know the the, the mindset on the spirit is enmity with God. And then First Corinthians two, which talks about. Um, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself judged by no one, uh, who himself has understood the Lord, the mind of the Lord, so as to instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ, and so this is this is a total depravity sort of question. Uh, but you know, if I were the Calvinist saying, "Look, guys, you're you're telling me." that a person can just can respond that has a person has the ability to respond to christ to respond to the gospel to believe but i'm looking at the bible and it's telling telling me that the natural person you know can't even understand the things of the spirit that that those who are in the flesh cannot please god well isn't responding positively to the gospel that that's pleasing to god isn't it so how can you say that somebody in the flesh can do that. So what are, what are the passages, Jordan? I, I do want to look at them. Um, uh, yeah. He had Romans so, eight was the one he was just mentioning. Yeah. Romans yeah which, eight, eight. Mm-hmm. And then first Corinthians two, uh, I started in 14. First, go ahead, Josh. I'm, uh, I'll go ahead and pull well, these up. So I can, I can say off top that the, the, the main problem with passages like this is isolating them from their immediate context. Um, and, mm-hmm. and fixating on particular terminology. Uh, the Calvinist landscape is very fixated on particular terminology. And when they see someone who is the natural man or in the flesh and those kind of words, what they are automatically bringing, consciously or unconsciously, they're bringing the baggage of total depravity and laying it over that word particularly. So when they see the natural man, what they mean is unable from birth, Right. Whereas elsewhere in the scripture, it talks about the man who lives according to the flesh has chosen to live according to the flesh in opposition to choosing to living according to the spirit. And in fact, it presupposes the choice has already been made and you've been making a lifestyle of one choice or the other. That doesn't say anything about whether or not that lifestyle can change, right? Mm -hmm. It actually assumes you've already chosen a lifestyle and you're living as though this is what you're following. If you're following the appetites and the passions of your own person, and those things are not subservient to something greater than than you or yourself or your passions or your immediate desires, then you will, in fact, fall into living for and through the flesh and its passions. And when you do that, your mind is not set on the things of God, and you will not be living in a way that is pleasing to God. You will not be in any sense uh, displaying an allegiance toward God or Christ 
when you're following the passions of your flesh. In fact, when you're following the passions of your flesh, you become, let's say, you, you, you set up for yourself, let's say psychologically speaking, you set up for yourself sub-personalities that begin to be stronger and stronger the more that you feed into them. You're actually creating for yourself habitual natures to your, your, your actions. Those action patterns, those habits in the ancient world, they would have been called rituals, let's say. Uh, so the person who's operating in the flesh has built up for themselves a series of rituals that allows them to worship the God that they serve. And so the person who's living in the flesh is not pleasing to God because he's participating in evil rituals and placating his own demons. That's ultimately what that means. And it has very mm -hmm. little to do with whether or not I can choose otherwise and very much mm. to do with what I am doing in my habitual living, because the little things that I do all the time inform much more about my living than the one crazy thing that happened that one time that I remember because it was really impactful. But my daily living is far more impactful than those big ticket item moments that we have that we, we anchor into them in our memory. But our lived experience can be at odds with that because we don't realize we're setting up these evil rituals, let's say. And that's ultimately what we're doing by living according to the spirit or according to the flesh is following those habitualized rituals and action patterns. That's where our living is. And it's so ingrained because it's habitual that it becomes something where you're not even actively considering what you're doing, right? You're just living and operating under that spirit, right? And so if, if, if we, we take the verses as is, and you say, the natural man cannot understand the things of God. Well, no, he couldn't because his mind is set on the things of the flesh. He's gratifying the appetites of the flesh. What in the world does he care about spiritual things? Why should he? It's a nothing but an interruption in his pleasure seeking, in his passions. And why would he pursue an interruption? It's, it's nothing more than an interruption to say, I'm doing this. I like it. I'm getting what I want. And you're telling me not to. Why should I listen to you? You know what I mean? And so that natural, that carnal mind is actually going to think about things in a fundamentally different way than somebody who is operatively following the guidance of the mm -hmm. spirit who calls himself holiness, right? If you're following a spirit called holiness, you're not going to be living in a way that says, you know what? This interruption is irrelevant. You're going to say, no, my passions are now an interruption. And so it's fundamentally different. So... <clears throat> The way I would word it and see if this is kind of lining up with with what you're kind of saying about Romans 8 is Paul's describing what the the natural outworking will be in as much as you are in a specific condition or category. So the the natural unavoidable outworking result of being in the flesh is that in as much as you are in the flesh, you will be hostile to God. Um, in as much as you are in the spirit, you you won't be. You won't be at enmity. You will you will understand the things of God. You will love the things of God. But in as much as you are in the flesh, those who are in this condition, here are the results of that. So, are you saying that Paul isn't? He's not discussing how or why one gets in this condition in the first place he's discussing what 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 is the unavoidable result or consequences in as much as you are in this condition and so one maybe an analogy that um might help clarify that if that's confusing to those listening uh would be 
those who are in the water will be wet. Wetness is a result of being in the water. It's unavoidable. You cannot be in the water and not be wet because one will unavoidably necessarily follow the other. If you become submerged in water, you will become wet. But mm -hmm. that's not to say, you know, the inability there is what happens as a result of being in the water. <clears throat> the inability isn't whether or not you have the ability to choose where your mind is set. Paul doesn't say those who are born into this world cannot set their minds on the spirit. He says those who are right. in the flesh can't set their minds on on this, the things of the spirit. And so he's assuming a condition is already, already you know, uh, uh, active in, in a person's life, either in the spirit or in the flesh. And so that, that would just be where then it, it would come down to, you know, the Calvinists saying, well, we, we were born into this condition, you know, uh, this is the condition we were born in and, and only through the regenerative work of the Holy spirit. Can you even have that ability to, to move your mind from being set on the one place to the other? Um, but what you're saying, maybe again, unless I'm misunderstanding is that that's not necessarily what Paul is discussing. He's not, He's not discussing an ability or inability to set our minds on one place or the other. He's talking about the, the natural consequences that result in as much as you are already in one of these conditions. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're, you're going to participate in worship of some kind. The question mm -hmm. is, what will, what will you worship? And what you worship will inform what you are becoming. And it's just, it, that's just how reality is. That's how it's been laid out for us. And so if you find yourself becoming something that you disdain, you need to be questioning yourself what kind of worship you've been participating in. And if mm -hmm. you worship the desires and appetites of the flesh and you participate in their placation, then you will reap the fruit of that labor. That's ultimately what's going to happen. And so just as you said, if you jump in the water, you're going to get wet, right? If you... If, if you take any natural good and passion that God has placed in your body and you treat it as a God, it'll quickly become a demon. Sexual desire, physical hunger, um, you know, a desire for power or influence, um, good looks, money, any number of things that are natural good, right? Influence is not an evil thing. All three of us are exercising influence right now and we're trying to use it for a good, Right. However, I could be an influencer, go on the internet and tell people to do a call, all kinds of debaucherous and stupid and evil things. And, and through that influence, I might change something about the world, right? If, if, if influence is a natural good that when treated as a God can quickly become a demon, we should think the same of most of our other passions, if not all of them, right? And so that the passions and desires of the flesh, if not put in check, through self-discipline and control and submission to a higher authority, then those things will in fact get treated as a God. And when they do, they will in fact transition into something very demoniac. So go ahead, Tyler, do you have something there to add? Yeah, no, I, I agree with what Josh is saying here and it helps to follow the, uh, the verbs and especially if you're reading this in the Greek, these are all present tense verbs that we're talking about, right? Especially in mm -hmm. Romans eight and really mm -hmm. Romans eight and, and verse Corinthians two, is, is Paul saying the same thing to two different churches, in my opinion. But in Romans 8, uh, you have a present active participle and also a present uh, 
present tense verb here. Uh, the thing of it is, is that, you know, whenever, and, and the way I interpreted this passage as a Calvinist, is that these, this is how it will be. This text, this text has nothing to do with the future, you see. And it, Paul is not making the statement that those who are in the flesh will not be in the, in the presence of God or will not be able to, dunate, will not be able to walk into the Spirit. He's talking mm-hmm. about how we live our lives right now. This is the same thing that happens in 1 John, uh, ver- uh, 1 John 1, verses 8, 9, and 10, right? The present tense verbs and participles show a continuous action, a lifestyle. Paul says there's a lot of English translations that in, in Romans 8, especially in this passage, 1 through 8, uh, that translates this specific word, this phronema, this mindset, or this worldview that, that Paul is speaking about here. And so it's just the logical conclusion that Paul is trying to show that your mindset or your phronema on the world, it leads to death. This is what the didache, if, if, if no one's ever read that's a very early, very early Christian uh, writing that comes literally, I mean, it's it's possibly written even before Revelation and and First uh, and Second Timothy even are written at this point. And so super, super early. And it talks about there's two ways. There's a way to death and there's a way to life. And those who are doing, i.e. presently, actively doing the things that lead one way or the other, that is the course you're setting your ship to go. Mm-hmm. That has nothing to do with the ability to change the course of that direction. What Paul is saying is if you keep on this course that you are currently participating in, not only are you making yourself more like that, again, going back full circle now to the beginning of this conversation, you are what you eat. Not only are you making yourself more like that which you participate in, you're not going the right way if your worldview is set on the flesh. But if your worldview is set on the things of the Spirit, then of course you can please God. Uh, Then you are pleasing God, I should say. Uh, not can, but, but that, that's, I mean, it's basically the same yep. thing that Josh said, mm-hmm. except, you know, differently a little bit. So that, that's yeah. how I would word it. Yeah. I, and I have to wonder how much Paul may have in writing these things or, or having this sort of concept uh, of how these things work might've thought of words of Jesus, like uh, Matthew six, uh, 22, where Jesus says the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye mm-hmm. is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if sure. your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And so, I don't know, maybe in, in the same way, one could take this and say, oh, see, Jesus just said, if 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 you are you know, serving the wrong master, your whole body's going to be full of darkness. There there's total inability. He's teaching that nobody can, nobody can choose which master they serve. Uh, but the point is obviously not Jesus saying, Hey, look, you have no, you have no ability to choose which master you serve here. You're either born serving the one or the other. 
Rather, this is this is a, a, an appeal, and I would say implicit in Romans places like Romans eight is is an appeal to look. These are the consequences. This is the negative outworking of serving the wrong master, of setting your mind on the things of the flesh. So don't set set your mind on the spirit. And and I would even argue if you read through the epistles and all the challenges Paul is facing, um, you know, particularly even in in like First Corinthians where he's dealing with a carnal church uh, who are you know bringing lawsuits against each other and sexual immorality. I mean, isn't right. it true that isn't it accurate that those you know was 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 that believer that Christian man who was sleeping with his father's wife was he not setting his mind on the things of the flesh. And so right. I think maybe maybe what the Calvinists would say here is that, yes, the Christian can set their mind on the flesh, but they can't be in the flesh. And Romans 8 talks about how, you know, he, he's describing, Paul is describing somebody who is in the flesh, um, which is which is something different, I think. They would say that's, that's more of a, I don't know, a, a positional, uh, uh, you know, statement on, on their fundamental position with God is that this isn't just somebody, you know, a Christian who, who is in the spirit saved, justified, but, you know, choosing sin in different moments. This is somebody whose very existence is defined as being in the flesh. Um, so I, I don't know if that, that response there makes sense, but I, I've, I have heard that as a response when I, when I discuss these things, well, and I, I understand where it's coming from. Uh, go ahead, Tyler. Well, it's like you you ask the person, and, and the example you brought up works perfectly because this is the people who Paul is writing to, right? You ask the, the, the Calvinist that would say that, was the person living in adultery with his with his father's wife, was, he, was his mind set on the flesh? Their answer has to be yes at this point, and that's what yeah. Paul is saying, and this makes perfect sense I, again, like with what I said, so so for example, Paul says in Romans 8, 5, for those who are living according to the flesh, that's a present verb, right? Mm -hmm. that, is, uh, that is indicating that this is a continuous action right now. For those who mm -hmm. are living according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh or set their phronema on the things of the flesh. So in that instance, the guy indeed was living according to the flesh. He was living according to his uh, passions. And that's why his mind went to the things of the flesh. You see and what I'm saying? Not, and, and fulfilled it, that. And in that, he could not understand the things of God. His, his, his mind was not. not in a state where he was understanding spiritual realities and understanding... Correct. And, and operating in the kingdom that was he was blind to that and don't and we see he, jesus <laughs> sorry don't we see not jesus sorry. telling the apostles you know at different times he says are are your hearts still hardened he says do right. you still not understand when they thought his you know he was rebuking them for not bringing enough bread i think it's in mark and he says are your, do you have eyes but you do not see ears and right. you still do not hear and so what what I mean, I think we can put that together with First Corinthians and say, well, they their minds were still hardened because they were still thinking uh, uh, in a, a worldly way. They weren't they weren't operating <laughs> with spiritual minds, and in as much as they were doing that, they could mm -hmm. not understand the things that Jesus was was saying. Mm -hmm. 
They and they would not. I, <laughs> I, I think that's a, that's an important distinction to make as well. Is that they would not do that because if they if the Calvinist at that point wants to bring up you know Pentecost and well think about it. Uh, Jordan, the Spirit was not yet given, so how can mm-hmm. they be living according to the Spirit if the Spirit hadn't been poured out on them yet? The thing of it mm-hmm. is, you turn it right back around and ask, okay, do you ever sin? In those moments where you are actively pursuing sin, living according to the flesh, and setting your mind on the things of the flesh, can't and, and, and participating in these things, you're not thinking of the spirit you're not thinking of the things of god at that point what you're doing is being selfish and i've done it josh has done it jordan i'm sure you've done it Mm -hmm. anytime we sin we that's what we're doing so we can't say at the same time but i'm understanding the things of god yeah i get that my sin and this is why i'm going to confess later i get that my sin is causing me and 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 well i was going to say causing me to do these things and that's true but the point is is that in those moments, again, remember, present active participles and present active verbs, in the moment of these actions, our minds are not set on the things of the of God. That's why we are unable to do the things that please God in those mm-hmm. moments. And just to make the devil mad, I actually have pulled up 1 Corinthians 2 and 3, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. at the end of chapter 2, when these statements come up, says these things we also speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches but which the holy spirit teaches comparing spiritual things with spiritual things but the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of god for they are foolishness to him nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned but he who is spiritual judges all things yet he himself is rightly judged by no one for who has known the mind of the lord that he may instruct him but we have the mind of Christ. You transition into chapter three, and Paul says, and I, brethren, could not speak to you, the church, the believers, the saved ones, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal, as babes in Christ. So then carnal can be a word to describe people who are still ignorant or unknowing or undeveloped, immature. He says, verse two, chapter three, verse two, I fed you with milk, not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. Hmm. Just a moment ago, he said, the person who is carnally minded cannot receive the solid food, the spiritual things. Why? Because they are immature. Their mind is incapable. They do not yet have holding places in the mind for the depth that would be necessary for this revelation. And Paul is careful and says, I do not give you revelation you don't have holding places for. I give you what you can deal with and can and can actually uh, tr- uh, 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 digest when I'm giving it to you. So I fed you milk. The third verse here is the thing, okay? He says in, cha- in, in chapter 3, verse 2, he says, even now you are still not able. Why? For you are still carnal. For where there are, are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? So the, all these saved people, all this saved people in Corinth, in the church, to whom Paul addresses this scriptural letter, those people are carnally minded, and they were not totally depraved. They were not born that way. Paul implicates them with that. He says, you did this. You've decided to go against what I've given you already. Do you not remember when I was there, I didn't come over here saying, you're baptized by me, therefore you're in my camp. He addresses this whole thing through the whole, the whole, the whole letter. 
And so if you take chapter two and isolate it from the rest of the letter, you're going to see carnal and go, oh, somebody who's born totally depraved who can't receive the gospel. When in, in fact, it doesn't say anything about your state from birth. And it mentions the gospel nowhere in those verses. Right. It says the deeper spiritual things that are not milk. They're solid food. According to Paul, these people were already saved by the gospel and receiving milk and they're carnally minded. So yeah, I, I, I find this yeah. to be uh, a little bit more preposterous when you start looking at the broader scope of it. And I think this, this leads to maybe a bit of what we were talking about earlier and how to maybe approach teaching rather than indoctrinating. What I would do here is I would just invite people who are, who are using first Corinthians two, looking at this as a Calvinism stronghold sort of, and, and well, just look at it. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for their foolishness to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Well, I would just say, take first Corinthians three. My question would be, well, isn't it true? These carnal Christians, some versions say they are still of the flesh. Um, People of the flesh, Paul calls them. Could they, did they, did in this in this moment when Paul was addressing them, did they have the capacity? Were they able to understand the First Corinthians two fourteen, the things of the Spirit of God, uh, the deeper uh, hidden things? Could they understand them? Um, that that would be my question. I won't I won't answer it. I think the obvious answer is there, <laughs> uh, but I just think that hopefully just sit with that question. And I think that, you know, what does that do? What does that do with your current uh, co comprehension of what Paul is trying to say in, in chapter two of first Corinthians, when you, when you follow up what he, what he says in chapter three, how does that impact what, what your assumptions are about the text? Especially Tyler, because the you, text initially, the text initially didn't have chapters or ver verse markings. It had paragraphs. Yes, exactly. That was that was <laughs> right. the demarcation was paragraphs. Yeah. And so ultimately, what you have is perfect continuity in thought. This is a continuation the of, of the thought. Exactly, and they're mere verses apart. That's the that's the catcher, right? If you didn't mm -hmm. have chapter separations in your Bible, you wouldn't even have a reason to isolate chapter two from chapter three in the same statements. There would be no reason to separate those two things to say the carnal mind cannot understand and cannot receive. Then he says, you carnally minded believers cannot, cannot understand and cannot receive. Those are maybe two, three verses apart. There's, there would be little reason to separate those things without the chapter mark. You know what I mean? So for the early church, especially, uh, and, and for, for Paul, who was authoring this letter for the Corinthian church, there would have been no line of separation between those thoughts. Yeah. And so what would it take then for one of these Christians who are in the flesh, they just heard this from Paul, this, this kind of rebuke, you're carnal. I can't, I can't give you the deeper spiritual truths. I can only give you milk because you can't handle because of the state that you are in. Would it take another regeneration? Is it just now... They just have to wait for God to change that disposition, or is there somehow something involved with their own uh, 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 within their own decision-making capacity to, to receive and listen to this rebuke they've just been given, and allow that either to humble them 
or harden them, uh, you know, what, what would it take now? Because it, they're not able. Paul doesn't say, he, 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 this seems, you know, total inability, right? They are not able to receive the things of the Spirit of God. I guess they're, I guess God just has to come and do a sovereign work. Or, or do they have a part to play here? Um, and and uh, so I know, obviously, again, the Calvinists would say, well, this is, this is a different situation because we're talking now about people who do have the Spirit. They're just, you know, assuming I, they I don't, do. Yeah, assuming they do. Uh, maybe they're, Maybe they will go out from us because they were never of us. Uh, who really knows? The I think story, I think it's but. possible. The objection that the Calvinists would make at this point to what I've said, at least, is ultimately that these people that Paul is addressing are a smaller subset group from within the group of believers. These are infiltrated fakes, and he's addressing them and saying you, you, and calling them out as carnal, where Paul doesn't actually make any exclusions. He's talking to the whole lump, right? He's talking to the whole church and saying, you guys are all responsible for this. Of Every, and he even brothers. calls, yeah, he calls them brothers and whoever it is he's addressing, he calls them infants in Christ. So these are, so then whatever their, whatever yeah. their inability amounts to, it cannot be pointing at an inability to receive the gospel because mm-hmm. they're past that point already. Yeah. Whatever it is we're talking about, that's an inability, a spiritual inability to d- to perceive spiritual truth. The gospel is not included in that. Mm-hmm. The gospel is already presupposed to be part of their repertoire because they were receiving milk from Paul. If they if they had not yet received the gospel even, and were completely unsaved heathens, there's no reason for Paul to be delivering them milk of any kind let alone talking about you couldn't receive the solid food. You don't give solid food to people who aren't born yet. That's silly. You don't, right. you don't give milk to dead men. Right. Well, you, yeah, we, <laughs> we see in, in chapter two, verse one. And when I came, so obviously Paul has already come. Paul has already established the church at Corinth at this point has probably already taught them like he did in Ephesus for what, three years, six years, something to that effect. But he says here in verse one, and when I came to you, brothers, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So they can't say that this is somehow Paul is talking to people that haven't been evangelized yet. He says it in the first verse of chapter 2 that he has evangelized them. Mm-hmm. And it's the same you all, plural, y'all, 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 uh, and when I was with y'all in weakness and fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And then he switches up, yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, but among the weaker we don't. It's this idea that there is a maturity, mm. there is a completion that is being performing, and some people are on the divine ladder, so to say, a little bit further than others, and that's okay. But the point is, there is a real, and this is a trigger word, like, so warning now, if you don't like the word synergy, leave. (laughs) But there is a real synergy among Mm -hmm. a real co-working together with God, and just look this Greek word up in the Bible, it's there. Mm You, you, you have to answer your original question, Jordan. Yes, there are at a point this Im- this immature 
you know, schmucks, let's call them, uh, especially the guy that was sleeping with his wife. And yet we see, even in 2 Corinthians, he does repent, which is great. Hallelujah. Thank God. And he takes on that spiritual mindset. But what has to happen? Excommunication has to happen. This being uh, uh, excluded from the, the participatory actions in the church, the synergy with God, that has to be excluded from this man to put him in a place where he realizes he's wrong. I mean, the text doesn't go into this and, and what's going through his mind, but what do we know? We know from 2 Corinthians that they come back, Paul tells them to embrace him as a brother, welcome him back into the church, and, and so whatever happened, we know it worked because he chose to cooperate with God synergistically, and, and now he's back in a place to where he can say, my mind, my phronema is set on the spirit and not mm -hmm. on the flesh. And I just, like you kind of emphasized, Tyler, a couple times here, there's, I, I, can, I can think of so many moments in this past year, in this past month, where, where all of this applies so directly to me. I mean, even, even I've yeah. mentioned the Twitter, the Twitter thing, what, you know, what that is, is, is an example of, I, I've spent, you know, a week or so on Twitter and, and, and just, I think by the conviction of the Holy Spirit started to realize, man, you are, you, your mind is set on the flesh. You're entering into these, some of these conversations where, where's, are you entering and do you sense the wisdom that is from above? Are you operating in that? Do you have, are you peaceable and gentle? Not that I was lashing. I, I, I was still restraining myself, but more as just inward reflection of what's, what's the condition of my heart right now. And just seeing that there's, there was just this dullness of mind where I wasn't, I wasn't connecting with that wisdom and that love in these conversations. And so what did I do? Well, I, I just said, okay, I, I had a choice there even. I could, I could say, well, okay, yeah, but I, there's something in me that's, I wanted to keep going. I wanted to, let's just keep engaging. I have something to say here. You know, I could do that or I could, I think, humble myself under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you in due time. Say, okay, I'm going to, something's not right here. Something's, I feel there's a disconnection from you. So yeah. I'm going to step back. I'm going to put put this thing aside and I'm going to, you know, humble myself and await that, that reestablishing connection with, with God, with his spirit, with wisdom, where I can see freshly, I can see the persons that I'm talking to in a way that I think reflects the way that Christ sees them and then, and then enter those conversations. Um, you know, and well, not to that point, Jordan is, you know, it's, very humbling for me, right? Because I'm in the same boat as you. And thinking back, now I can only speak for myself at this point, but I would assume, maybe I'm just a weird duck and, and, and I was the only one, the only Calvinist to ever do this. But if I would get in those situations to where I felt a certain way, right? I would honestly think to myself, well, maybe this is just the way this is predetermined to happen and I'm supposed to be doing this, no self-reflection, no no mm -hmm. willingness even. I mean, I guess there was a desire there, like maybe I shouldn't be participating in this, but God knows better than me. Obviously, he's determined this. Mm -hmm. And so there was this, 
I, I wouldn't do what you're talking about as much and just kind of roll with the wave, so to say, instead of actually realizing that, no, there is a synergistic application to my life. I can actually stop what I'm doing, reflect, take 10 breaths, and actually reassess this a certain way, no matter what I'm feeling in the moment, right? And so, I, I don't know, like I said, maybe I'm just a weird yeah. duck. <laughs> but uh, but that was a real thought and a real thing that I struggled with for a long time whenever I was a Calvinist. Well, if, if God has, you know, declared the end from the beginning, then, mm. you know, in, in many Calvinist assessments of that, that would mean that even your lack of charitableness in a conversation. That's right. That's well, exactly what I, I mean. I mean, he, he ordained, he ordained everything from uh, the Holocaust right. to the, the rape of children. All and so, things. so why, why would I be so bent out of shape or concerned that I'm being a little bit hateful right now? I'm yeah. I just, I just, I just kind of insulted him in the midst of this conversation. Yeah. This, my attitude doesn't really, I couldn't honestly say I really look like Christ right now, but you know, but that's what was determined for me. Yeah, that's so. What, so yeah, I, I can see how it could result in a bit of passivity here, uh, mm -hmm. where where really these things I think should lead us to again self reflection, and and you know striving, <laughs> efforting, yeah. efforting to to reestablish that connection of faith and trust. Uh, because really that's you know what this all comes down to anytime we're operating in anything whether it's lust or hate or pride or greed the issue is a disconnection between us and the father and we've become like the naked adam and eve just trying to sow fig leaves and trying to to just to to do life right in that separated place right and we need to go back and realize wait a minute he's he's provided clothing I'm okay. Don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will wear, how you will win this debate. I have a father that loves me. I'm good. I'm good. Right. Reestablish and that. The, oh, wait, I can see this is a person I'm talking to. This is a person right. who God right. loves and I love him. I don't want to hurt him. I don't want to make him feel dumb. Yeah, I want him to see. I, I want him to see where he's wrong, but I care about him. Um, yeah. There's a reality behind that symbol profile picture, a real yes. human being behind the <laughs> right. symbol. And God, not only that, but God has provided that way of, of escape. Remember 1 yes. Corinthians 10, 13, yeah. we'll make that full circle. God yeah. has provided the way of escape. Why? Not for me to deterministically just follow the path that God has laid out for me. No, no, no. God put that way of escape there so that I would choose to take it. And, mm -hmm. and I can choose to take that. So, Yeah, what a great way to circle back around. That's, that's it right there. Mm -hmm. Is providing. Whether it's right. the Twitter, whether it's the lust, whether it's the whatever. That's right. There is that way. But it does involve us self-reflecting and then making a choice of where, where am I going to set my mind right now. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. That's right. So that establishes that at least Christians are libertarianly free. 
sometimes. <laughs> At least <laughs> right. Christians. Yes. At least. Right. Yeah. The question is whether or not the unsaved are there. But um, yeah, that I, I don't know if you could see it there. I actually have a, a, a screen. Oh, yeah. Let me to, pull it up. I wanted to, 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 to go over this and show uh, Tyler mentioned before that if it bothers you uh, to hear the word synergy, um, that that you know that this is going to be a, a disappointment or a bit of a letdown, maybe that uh, un, unwanted interruption, let's say. But in in all in all seriousness and kindness, I have to say that it actually is here, and it's it's not like the word monergism is not in the scripture. However, us working together with God is in fact explicitly in the scripture. So if you go to 2 Corinthians 5, starting at verse 20, we have this paragraph mark right here. That, that's the demarcation right there. That's where this, this section uh, begins a new thought. Now, then we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of, oops, sorry, the righteousness of God in him. Now, if I go to the very next chapter, it's part, this is part of the same continuing thought, a small mini paragraph. <laughs> he says, we then as workers together with him, I just want to go ahead and show you, we then as workers together, synergeo with him. Him, him who, the Christ, God, we are the ambassadors making our appeal to you from God, working together with him, with God. Synergy is in the scripture explicitly. Boom, mm -hmm. right there. You work, we work. <laughs> Paul claims himself to work with God for a particular end and goal. That is synergy. That's what we're talking about. And what a man. <laughs> and let me just throw this in here because I think this 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 is a, a good fitting place to bring this this whole concept in the the the, the concept of believers being rewarded. Um, so you have Jesus, you know, saying, uh, "Well done, good and faithful servant." Uh, you have Jesus giving a certain measure of of talents. And some were faithful with that while others were not. And you have him commending. He commends the ones who respond to that, that purpose, that, that desire that God had for their usefulness in his kingdom that he presented them. Again, God gave them this, this opportunity to here, here's the talent. However, we want to look at that. Here's your life. Here's the specific measure of gifting and ability and, and physical possessions, position and life, whatever, whatever that is. Now you have an opportunity to do something with that. But it's, um, it's this idea that God would say, to cut to the choice, this idea that God would say, well done, good and faithful servant. To me... I, this isn't just like a, a jab at Calvinism. This is a sincere uh, assessment looking at Calvinism where I, I find it really hard. And there's many passages, you know, like that, where, where you see, if you look at the whole beginning chapters, you know, of Revelation, where Jesus is commending the different churches or rebuking them and then promising them certain rewards. Um, the idea 
<clears throat> that God would say, you know, that Christ would say, well done, good and faithful servant. To me, it would seem to be kind of reduced to a bit of an absurdity if Calvinism were true, because what, what could this believer who's being commended have done other than what he did? It, it would be kind of like a, I don't know what, what an appropriate example would, would be necessarily. All, obviously all analogies fall apart, but it'd be like, you know, if I, if I take my son, uh, you know, a five-year-old to, to box uh, an eight-year-old who's much stronger than him, but I stand behind my son the whole time and I'm the one controlling his arms, kind of throwing the, the swings and he wins. And then I say, good job, you know, well done. You did it. Um, you know, that, that doesn't seem like the best example, but I think you're getting my point is that, that, well, he didn't, what's, what, what right. was his part to play where the, where his being commended, praised makes any sense. It just seems a bit absurd. It's like God is basically, God is basically, I mean, uh, praising him himself in a, in a sort of an underhanded way of saying, well, good job doing the thing that I may or, 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 or unchangeably ordained you to do, leaving you with no ability to do anything other than you did. Um, uh, you know, it just seems to me, I don't know, what, what's, what's your guys' evaluation on that? Because to me, it just seems like the whole principle of God giving well, rewards and in you know First Peter one, you see it's Peter says your your faith will result in praise, glory, and honor. Well, uh, what it just seems like all meaning to that would be completely lost, or again reduced to a bit of an absurdity if Calvinism well, were true. Well, this is exactly the objection that I was saying was my main problem coming out of Calvinism was that total depravity made the idea of blame and praise a, a soup sandwich. It's just a mess. Yes. Like you can't, there's nothing to do. There's no, it's not workable anymore to say something is blameworthy or praiseworthy, but also unavoidable necessity, as in it's just a causal relation. I don't give a congratulatory handshake to a domino that falls when another domino fell on it. <laughs> and that would be silly. It would be silly. Mm -hmm. If you can make the domino awake and aware of its experience of falling, and then be so deceptive as to give it that handshake and make it think that it just decided to fall would be deceptive, which is Tim mm -hmm. Stratton's argument for free thinking is saying God ends up becoming a deity of deception. If we accept yep. all these things to say determinism, this exhaustive determinism, right? Uh, that that's going to, that that's going to encompass everything, right? If that's true, then you're, there's nothing that falls outside of that. Your thought life, your conclusions, your experiences, your thoughts and conclusions about your experiences, your beliefs and thoughts, your thoughts and beliefs about your thoughts and beliefs, all of that is equally determined. And therefore, there's no reason, any, there's no reason left anymore that your own thoughts and judgments and beliefs would be considered in any way reliable, justifiable, or trustworthy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, ultimately, it really strips down everything. That was the mm -hmm. that was my main problem initially was the revelation that came through that and following that to its logical end was God is a solipsist and I happen to be a really elaborate convenient part of his a, a remarkable imagination and I think I it seems as though 
I'm making decisions, that I'm a person, that I have some long lasting effect and meaning to reality itself, that I'm engaging and participating in reality as it comes to me. But that seeming is illusory. And mm -hmm. the seeming is all that's necessary in compatibilism to establish you are making a choice. You are a like a blameworthy uh, a moral agent of some kind because you're making a choice. And, and, and that you think and treat yourself as though you are the source of that choice. None of those things is factual, but it seems as though, and you live as though, and God will treat you as though you are a moral agent and what you do matters. There doesn't seem to me a reason left for affirming that. It just seems a mere ad hoc convenience to maintain blameworthiness and praiseworthiness, but mm -hmm. it just, I don't think that it holds any water. I think it's got way yeah. too many problems. It just doesn't hold water. Well, it's kind of, you know, the Westminster confession that has the, the <clears throat> sentences about how I can't remember exactly how it's worded, but God has ordained, you know, unchangeably whatsoever comes to pass and then, you know, right. people will be, yeah. when you point Not out in such that, a way that, that he's passage, implicated, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's just kind of like, it's like, yeah, yes, this, this square is a circle, but it's still a square because, well, because. Um, By the so way, I, questions I just, about geometry are outlawed. We don't do that here. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just find it, I've, I've, I find it just perplexing, honestly, because, I, you know, when you bring up things like that, you know, where Calvinists will say, well, you're just misrepresenting Calvinism. God doesn't ordain evil or, or, you know, so on and so forth. All say, things well, you know, that come to pass. Yeah. Whatsoever comes to pass. As R.C. Sproul says, there's not one road molecule. Well, would molecule. that not, and it, would that, would that not include the molecules involved in your brain making decisions to sin? Are they rogue? Are they out of God's sovereign control and determination? Right. No, they're not. He has determined the exact movement and activity of every molecule in your brain every single time you sin, whether it's the rapist or the Hamas or whatever it is, the molecule. Yes, they're blameworthy. They're blameworthy because they, well, they wanted to do it. That's what they wanted to do. And so, exactly. well, yeah, they wanted to do that because their molecules were were positioned and and worked on in such a way so that that was what they would unchangeably want to do. Just keep so it simple. God <laughs> determined them to want to do that. Right. Yeah. That's but, why they wanted to do that. But Tyler, the Westminster Confession goes on to say that he does so in a way so that he's not the author of sin or, or secondary the causation of it. So. so I would argue that the only way secondary causation can actual can be actuality is if that uh, synergy exists. And because it does not in their worldview, then you're going to have a good hard time explaining to me how exactly that works. We're just going to appeal to mystery and hope you'll buy it. I don't buy it. Yep. Yep. And secondary causation. The appeal to mystery. We, we, we had a conversation with Colton Carlson, which, by the way, if anybody doesn't know who Colton Carlson is, uh, you should check out the episodes that we did previously with him. That guy was one of the yeah. most concise speakers and thinkers awesome. that was giving us thoughts about compatibilism. He laid it out beautifully. Dude's props, brilliant. Colton. 
Um, and yep. so w- while we were having that conversation, um, we, we came to a portion in the conversation where he was giving an analogy about Harry Potter and things like that. And people's usual response to that analogy is Harry Potter's not a real thing. So it's not it, you're like your analogy fails. He's like, no, the relevant part of my analogy is that even though uh, uh, the, the author of Harry Potter is not the one who killed Voldemort, technically speaking, the reason Voldemort's dead is the author not Harry. But if I said, did you read the last Harry Potter book? You found out, right? Didn't you see how Harry was responsible for the death of Voldemort? Right. And so the idea is reality bears the same relation to its author that a novel would bear to its author. Right. And the idea is that there's some level of separation that's supposed to be illustrated by that. The problem comes though, when the idea of our blameworthiness or praiseworthiness is attached to nothing more than the experience mm. of an agency rather than mm. an actual agency. I'm not a real moral agent free to think and do as I choose. I am an experiential agent that is designed to be in a particular way that is accounted for by all the pre the, the preconditions, right? Uh, the way that 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 uh, Tim Stratton articulates this is that all of the antecedent conditions are sufficient to necessitate everything that I do. Nothing that I do is in any way untethered from that causal necessity. And what we're saying as advocates of free will is saying no. The reason you're blameworthy or praiseworthy is exactly that you are untethered from causal necessity. That you are, in fact, a kind of locale of miracle. That you are feeding new information into the event we call nature. And your interaction is real, and it has meaning, and it has lasting Mm -hmm. effect. The past is a permanent place, and the future is coming at you moment to moment. And you are, in fact, confronting it as it confronts you. That's real. It's not an illusion. It's a real thing. And that's why you're blameworthy and praiseworthy for what you do with what you have. You are that causal agent. You are that causal power. You're not bound to a causal necessity. You are a causal power of your own. God has endowed you with that ability and right and privilege and responsibility. And what you do with it makes a big difference. Because if, if, you know, if, if the ability to choose contrary to God's will was not available, then sin would not be a word with any meaning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It just doesn't all that. Yeah. yeah, And all that is just a part of being made in the image of God, where we, we are endowed with certain capacities and abilities, which, which makes, makes both sin and righteousness, I think so much more significant in, in what it means and what capacity we have in our own worlds and our own lives and families that that yeah we have a capacity to make decisions that have uh, implications, real implications, um, genuine significance. And I know, yeah, yeah. And Tyler, I know uh, you need to drop off, and we're we're running a little bit later than I expected. So so, no, that's fine. Can re- that's fine. Are you good? Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. I've got pro- I, like I said, I've got probably about another fifteen minutes that I can. Okay. Cool. Well, then maybe maybe what I'll do is I'll just I'll just ask this. uh, We'll call this the final question. 
tentatively. <laughs> but uh, th this is just, I guess, what's in the yeah, back of my right. mind, what I think at least one direction still trying to keep a, a Calvinist hat on. I want to I want to think about, and I know there's so much that we've said where the Calvinists would have wanted to jump in. I understand that, and we can't, we can't put in every argument. We want to try to steel man it uh, as best as we can, uh, the opposing position. But I think one question that, you know, I think a Calvinist would have would be uh, something along the lines of, it, it seems like you're saying that, well, let me just word it in sort of the cliche uh, uh, way that it so often is. Well, wh why, why would you guys choose, you know, why did you choose Jesus when your neighbor doesn't? Are you just, so you're just more humble? So, so it's just your, your choice then is what saves you. Uh, so you're just, you know, your choice meets, you're just better, you're better than your neighbor, that, you know, your neighbor that doesn't choose God, that continues in sin. I guess you're just, there's something about you that's more humble, more righteous. You just have, you just have yeah. what it takes Duh. that they don't to, to make that choice. That's right. Uh, so, uh, so, you know, the Romans 8 says those who are in the flesh can't please God, but obviously you guys... You you say you have that capacity to please God even when you're in the flesh, and obviously this is something your neighbor can't do. So <laughs> you're just saved because you're better than other people. Man, if I had a dollar for every straw man in there, I'd be a rich man right <laughs> now. How many times no. have you offered that objection, Tyler? How many times? <laughs> oh my God, a lot, a lot. And I, you know, I say straw man, but no, that's. That's how it seems like the Calvinists would respond because there are and, and nuance obviously between Calvinists like we're we're, we're giving right. a full picture here, but the point is is that yeah you're you're right. Um, here here's the issue. Here's the issue. No one and <laughs> this is interesting. So I'm not trying to like sidetrack here, but this idea of Pelagianism comes up at this point, right? Uh huh. And yeah. I would have, if you've never read the letters that uh, Pelagius actually wrote, and I think it's to Pope Innocent the First, um, you should read those because Pelagius is actually arguing that he does not believe what Augustine is accusing him of. That's interesting. He actually lists what it is he believes in about a 32-point statement of faith. And he, uh, de like, he denies over and over again, I do not believe that men can just come to God on their own. I affirm grace. I affirm infant baptism. That was the two things that he was being accused of not believing was infant baptism and this idea that grace is unnecessary. He said, no, I don't believe that. So I would reiterate what Pelagius said. Oh, there goes Tyler's a Pelagian. No, Pelagianism <laughs> is heresy. The problem is Pelagius didn't believe Pelagianism, according to his own words. And so again, look up uh, the letter to, uh, to Pope Innocent I, I believe it was, uh, you can find it, just Google it. But anyway, I would argue that no, grace is 100% necessary. 
We do not come to Christ on our own. There's nothing better about me than my neighbor. Nothing like that. The thing I can say that what I did that my neighbor didn't do was respond positively to the calling and the drawing that Jesus gives everyone. This is the reason that people go to hell and the reason people go to heaven is that they choose to participate in the grace that has been offered to them. So there's nothing better. We all have that capability. We all have the faculties within us to respond positively to the grace that has been given to us. And the only difference between me and my neighbor is not that I'm better. Matter of fact, I'm probably worse than my neighbor. But what I did that she or he didn't do was respond positively. I said yes. That doesn't make me better. That doesn't make me more worthy. That doesn't do anything to that effect. What that, what that does is put me in a position to, I've already accepted the gospel, but it puts me in a position to participate in Christ more. Mm-hmm. And that's, what, that's ultimately what it comes down to, in my opinion, is that are we participating in Christ or not? And whenever we make that decision to do that, we have the world. We, the sky is our limit. God is is our limit in how much we participate in him. And I'll say it one more time for the people in the back, synergistically. And so, no, there's that doesn't make me better. That doesn't do anything like that. What it does so, is, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, we'll finish your thought. Go ahead. Finish thought. I was just going to say what it does is put me in a position to respond more to the grace that has been given to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I would say, and I think, full disclosure, the pushback question I'm about to ask is is um, when you understand the assumptions behind it, I think is a bit of nonsense. But you just said, Tyler, your choice, your choice is going to ultimately is what what makes the distinction between your salvation and, you know, your neighbor's damnation. And so I think That's what right. Calvinists would do here is they would continue to to they would not they would have not heard the last minute two minutes of what you just said because they would have <laughs> they would have got hooked at the moment you talked about you made that you made that choice which is mm-hmm. probably about how I would word it too mm-hmm. but I guess my question is because again they're gonna this is gonna be the uh, big stumbling block and it is mm-hmm. is they're not gonna be able to get over that well. Tyler, Josh, Jordan, you guys. So you're just saying you, you you made a more spiritual choice than the other person. And so I guess my what I what I think you know is uh, the underlying misconception going on with this question has to do with the nature of what that choice is and what it is not. Mm-hmm. Is that choice a, a, a humbling of oneself? Uh, uh, an outstretching of the hand, as it were, rather than a clenched fist and a uh, you know a, a turned back, a stiff neck. Is that mm-hmm. choice the nature of what that choice is? The the question really that needs to be addressed when the Calvinists would push back against that, as they would, would be yeah. what is the nature of that choice? Because the assumption of the Calvinists is there's something about the nature of that choice. That must be righteousness in itself. That's and maybe they wouldn't word it that way, but uh, well, there you go. 
but it seemed like what what's the problem with making a choice a a positive a good choice because even the Calvinists would would understand that the unregenerate might choose to help the old lady across the street rather than pushing her in front of traffic, which is yeah. oh so what so so what that that guy who pushed her in front of traffic he made a choice that's better than the person who you know at the same moment was down the street you know breaking into his neighbor's house and 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 killing him for a TV so so I guess that person is better uh, it's, and so I think I think again the the confusion has to do with what is the nature of those sort of choices that that choice itself is not something that is righteousness or spiritually alive I guess is, is maybe how how I would word it but how would I guess all that, which is a bit confused and jumbled, but I guess what would what would you guys do with with all all that? So my answer might might spark some fierce debate. So I'll let Josh yeah. go first, and if he doesn't say what I'm about to say, I'm going to give you the gun, <laughs> okay, and yeah. you can pull that trigger. And so if he doesn't say what I'm going to say, then I'll then then I'll do it. So but go, yeah. but go ahead, Josh. I don't know. I don't know what you're gonna say. Um, so, so I would <laughs> think I, east, think eastern. Okay, <laughs> and you um, got no, it. I'm intrigued. <laughs> well, well, okay. I, I think I know what he's talking about, but I'll just I'll continue on my first train of thought here. Yeah, um, go ahead. Let's say I shift the analogy. Use the exact same question. You made a yeah. decision that your neighbor did not make. Your outcome is good. Your neighbor's outcome is not good. Same scenario, different decision. I wore a seatbelt. My passenger did not. We experienced the same car wreck in the same car. I survived and they were maimed. Was my decision holier than theirs? Was it more informed? Was it better? The answer would be, yeah, probably. Yeah, probably yeah, better. It's it a was, better decision. wasn't it? Um, there are good Pretty and bad simple. decisions. And the idea that good and bad decisions only exist within the framework of whether or not you're saying yes to Jesus is plainly silly. Now, what, yeah. what they're trying to frame the situation as is your decision earns or merits you right. something. Yes, that's it. The question would be, when in the world did wearing a seatbelt merit me life? Right. The answer is never because that's irrelevant. I'm not earning life by wearing a seatbelt. I'm avoiding tragedy, ultimately. I am, I am avoiding what would be had my neglect been there instead of my decision. Okay, so then if the question is, your decision is the difference between you going to heaven and your neighbor going to hell. No, it is not. It is the difference between me going to heaven or going to hell. My decision has no bearing on what my neighbor does at all, in fact. And so there's several fundamental issues here. But ultimately, even if you go down to the bottom of it, the only person in this whole scenario who's trying to assert that my neighbor had something or that I have something that my neighbor does not have is in fact the Calvinist because I don't believe my neighbor is totally depraved. I mm -hmm. believe my neighbor is just as able as I am and there's nothing standing in their way. I don't have anything they don't have. I'm not endowed with some special magic power. That isn't there. Nobody's asserting that but the Calvinist. Mm -hmm. Nobody is saying that the neighbor is dirty, rotten, stinking, you know, pig-stealing grandfather. Nobody, nobody yeah. thinks that that's who we're talking about, except 
the Calvinist. Nobody says I'm better than somebody else and my nature is fundamentally different because I chose properly, except the Calvinist. Nobody's making that assertion but them. So they need to make their bed and lie in it. You think you're better than your neighbor because of what God did to you. Oh, but it was all of grace, I'm, Josh. It was right, all of and grace. that grace makes you better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the right. grace makes you more there humble. It, it makes you better. It doesn't it change the superior. fact that you're still better. Right, it makes yeah. you the elite of all spiritual reality, in yeah. fact. And it has mm -hmm. nothing to do with you or your neighbor. It has to do with God showing favoritism to one and not the other. And ultimately, the only person that creates this void of a problem is the Calvinist. Nobody else has this issue. Yeah. That's, I do think that's why one, there's so many directions to go here, but I think the first thing to do, if, if somebody listening to this encounters that question, well, why did you choose and your neighbor didn't? You can turn that right back around and say, that's a great question. Why did I choose and my neighbor didn't? Well, in your, in your version, it's because God loved me and hated my neighbor. That's why I chose right. because God loves me. He favors me and he hates the neighbor. And he made me better that's, than them. And, he, and right. he, he made me better, more capable of that. And there was something about how he made me and his eternal plan that there was something about choosing me as opposed to him that would be that would serve to better fulfill, to better glorify himself, to better bring about his purposes, right? Unless he made it the choice arbitrarily, unless it was random, there had to be a, something about the way he created me that made me a, a better choice, a more appropriate choice, a more effective choice in producing the outcome in the universe that God wanted to to bring about. But but Tyler, I know I, I want to hear this controversial take you got. <laughs> yeah, so I'm uh Josh, do you remember what chapter that was in in John of Damascus that I've read a couple times now? Was that like in the first what chapter? I don't remember what chapter it was in. I think I found it. Okay, so let me just start out by saying this. In the East, along with the denial of PSA, comes this denial of imputed righteousness. Okay? Oh, shocker, right? Um, the the issue is, is with imputed righteousness is that from the uh, Calvinistic understanding, and we can apply this to anyone who really believes in imputed righteousness, but this idea that God only treats us as if we were righteous, but doesn't actually make us righteous. That's a mm. problem in the East. And with that framework, right, God is making us truly like himself, right? This is the whole concept of theosis. Right. And so with our actions that please God, if holiness, be holy, the commandment is, for I am holy, not I'm going to treat you as if though you were holy when you really aren't, that seems like double speak to me. And so, but the, but if we're just going off scripture and not my uh, interpretations of what other people are saying, the commandment is be holy for I am holy. And so if holiness pleases God and our actions please God, then there is in some sense, we produce righteousness, we produce holiness, or I like to phrase it like this, we work out as Philippians 2 says, or, or is it Philippians 2? We work out what yeah. God works in. I think, I think it is. 
Um, yeah, yeah, some, some, some mm-hmm. of that effect. I don't have it. Someone said somewhere. I'll be like the writer of Hebrews for a second. <laughs> yeah, right. <clears throat> but the point is, <laughs> is that the righteousness that God is working in us, we truly are working out. God is truly making us righteous. Mm-hmm. So this, in, this idea of treating us as though we were righteous, even though we were, really aren't, is a foreign concept uh, in the mind of Eastern Orthodox Christians and in the mind of myself. Um, the, what I want to do here is, is read, now this is from St. John of Damascus. He, uh, he was a Christian or he, he, he lived, uh, in the, between the seven and eight hundreds and he actually had a lot to say about free will. And so I just want to read a little bit of his exposition of the Orthodox faith, uh, concerning free will and predestination. This chapter 25, and it's a little lengthy, but it won't be, it's not too bad. So if y'all just bear with me for just a second, he says this, the first inquiry involved in the consideration of free will, that is of what is in our own power is whether anything is in our power for there are many who deny this. The second is what are the things which are in our power and over what things do we have authority? The third is what is the reason for which God who created us endued us with free will? So then we shall take up the first question, and firstly, we shall prove that of those things which even our opponents grant, some are within our power. And let us proceed thus. For of all the things that happen, the cause is said either to be God, necessity, or fate, or nature, or chance, or accident. But God's function has to do with essence and providence. Necessity deals with the movement of things that ever keep to the same course. Fate with the necessity or the necessary accomplishment of the things it brings to pass, for fate itself implies necessity. Nature with birth, growth, destruction, plants and animals. Chance with what is rare and unexpected. For chance is defined as the meeting and concurrence of two causes originating in choice, but bringing to pass something other than what is natural. For example, if a man finds a treasure while digging a ditch, for the man who hid the treasure did not do so, so that the other might find it, nor did the finder dig with the purpose of finding the treasure, but the former hid it that he might take it away when he wished, and the other's aim was to dig the ditch. Whereas something happened quite different from what both had in view. Accident again deals with the causal occurrences that take place among lifeless and irrational things apart from nature and art. This then is their doctrine under which then of these categories are we to bring what happens through the agency of man if indeed man is not the cause and beginning of action. For it would not be right to ascribe to God actions that are sometimes base and unjust, nor may we ascribe these to necessity, for they are not such as ever continue the same, nor to fate, for fate implies not possibility, but only necessity, nor to nature, for nature's providence is animals and plants, nor to chance, for the actions of men are not rare and unexpected, nor to accident, for that is used in reference to the causal occurrences that take place in the world of lifeless and irrational things. We are left then with this fact, that the man who acts and makes is himself the author of his own works and is a creature endowed with free will. Further, if a man is the author of no action, the faculty of deliberation is quite superfluous. For to what purpose could deliberation be put if man is the master of none of his actions? For all deliberation is for the sake of action. But to prove that the fairest and most precious of man's endowments is quite superfluous would be the height 
of absurdity, John of Damascus says. For then, if man deliberates, he deliberates with a view to action, for all deliberation is with a view to and on account of actions. John goes on to say that God actually created us, and, and I thought it was in there, but but I guess not, but I won't keep reading because it's pretty long. But John goes on to say that God created us with the ability to do what is good or what is pleasing in God's sight, from and, and we retain that even in the fall. And so with the fall comes, yes, corruption, comes death, comes all of this, but what did not go away entirely was the ability to do that which is good. And so from that aspect, from that mind frame, the Calvinist is going to have huge problems because they affirm total depravity in which we cannot do good. You take total depravity out of the concept, which Christians have believed this now, the idea that total depravity isn't a thing for, let's see, uh, 1,500 years before Calvin came along, and you have this understanding that righteousness isn't a bad thing. Righteousness is what God desires that we be like, and be more so be like him who is righteousness and justice. And so that all together, I want to say that it's very, very, I think, if you flip it back on the Calvinist, to deny all these things that we've just been talking about, it's 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 not good, and it's not what Christians have believed for 1,500 years before the Reformation came along, before Calvin came along. And so with that being said, like for me, and this is just my heart, guys, like I, I know I got to go here in a second, but I just want to like plead, and not, not necessarily plead, but just lay my heart out on the table for our listeners to be critiqued or whatever. I, don't, I, I really don't care at this point. But my thing is, and, and this is really what has drove me personally to where I'm at now, and that is I just want to believe what Jesus taught. How do I do that? I listen to the apostles, and where the apostles lack, because again, I don't hold to sola scriptura, then they're disciples. Because again, what we read in First, Second uh, Timothy chapter 2, teach men, Timothy, the things that I handed down to you, and you teach them to others so that they can teach others. And this whole line of teachings that, that go from one bishop to another, this is how we understand what it was that Jesus taught. This is how we understand what it was the apostles, the disciples believed over the, passage, the passages that we've been arguing about for 500 years now. This is, I, in my opinion, how we come to the Orthodox faith is by listening to those voices that came way before us and 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 try and really really seek uh, to seek Jesus in, in, in this. We we want to be like him. We want to do the things that he said to do. We want to do the things that he taught. And in my opinion, the best way to come to that conclusion about what those things even are is to listen to the apostles and their disciples. And so I'll leave it with that. Um, but but this idea of total depravity and Calvinism mm-hmm. again, just look at church history. It didn't exist back then, y'all. And unless we're mm-hmm. willing to say, well, they just got it wrong, like, I don't have that big of an ego. I don't think I could say that um, anymore anyway. So, mm-hmm. In other Josh. words, in, I was going to say, in, in other words, everything that he just read from St. John was 
it is not evil to properly operate as the image of God. That's right. It is not evil to operate properly as the image of God. And what that means is when you make a decision that is the one you ought to make, that in fact is righteous and does glorify God, the person who tries to implicate you with evil in making that decision is being unthoughtful. There's no reason to try to poke and prod and get somebody to second guess the idea that when you decided, when you decided that Jesus was better than your passions and an eternity away from God, and you began to follow him, the person that comes at you and says, now you have a superiority problem over your neighbor because you made a right decision is doing a great disservice to the reality of that decision. They are following Christ. Why in the world would you implicate them and say that their decision to do so was in fact evil or somehow robbery of God himself when they are in fact finally imaging him properly and what glory they do receive for making a righteous decision reflects directly back on the God that gave them the ability to make the decision in the first place. There is no reason to implicate the idea of conversion as somehow evil or stealing from God. There is literally nothing that I can, could, would, or otherwise be able to do that God did not make the reality around me in such a way as to afford that decision. And if it fits within the reality God had designed, and it brings me closer to him, and it reflects his character properly, and brings humility to my heart and soul, this is not an evil. This is operating properly as an imager of God, perhaps for the first time. And I think we are, it is a huge disservice to implicate that as evil. Hmm. And even in talking about, uh, or, or, or looking at that as being, you know, the cause of one's salvation, you made a choice. And so you're, you're saying you're ultimately saved due to that better choice. Well, well, even that one could say, well, no, that's still looking at uh, secondary causes because underlying that choice is God's choice for that choice to have any meaning at all. God could justly, righteously look at that, you know, the the wicked King David who humbled himself and, and was broken and contrite in spirit and had faith to know that God's ways were better than his own and to run to God for forgiveness. God could have justly not forgiven David and even in spite of that choice that David made to humble himself in such a way God didn't God wasn't you know uh obligated to respond to that and to any of us in, in a specific way uh he doesn't have to respond to our choice with salvation with with righteousness um our choice only does anything because God has determined it to be that way because God is pleased to save those who believe God I don't, he could have been pleased to save those who who you know eat a spoonful of dirt uh, you know and, and so I think it's it's God's it's still it's God's determination it's God's choice that is ultimate here it's, it's not our choice to respond to God in a certain way that makes the ultimate difference. 
it only makes a difference because of what God has already chosen about about what the meaning of that choice will be. And and again, that comes back to God is, oh, yeah. we don't know why, but God is pleased to save those who believe. God is pleased by uh, uh, saving believers, those who run to him, who humble themselves, who trust in him. Just, just real quick, Jordan, I found that uh, that what I wanted to read out of John of Damascus, but but I found something else too that you're you're going to like because it aligns with what you just said. So check this out. Uh, this is in chapter twenty nine uh, of his. Uh, uh, I, I think it's book three, or, or yeah, I'm pretty sure it's book three. Um, anyway, chapter twenty nine says, "But of actions that are in our hands, the good ones depend on his antecedent goodwill." And pleasure, yep. exactly what yeah. you just said. Now, here's the difference. Here's the difference between John of Damascus and uh, the Westminster Confession. While the wicked ones depend neither on his antecedent nor his consequent will, but are a concession to free will for that which is the result of compulsion has neither reason nor virtue in it. God makes provision for all creation and makes all creation the instrument of his help and training, yea, often even the demons themselves, as for example in the case of Job and the swine. And now here's the part that I was looking for. Uh, this is the very next chapter, chapter 30. But bear in mind, too, that virtue is a gift from God implanted in our nature, and that he himself is the source and cause of all good. And without his cooperation and help, we cannot, will, or do any good thing. But we have it in our power either to abide in virtue and follow God who calls us into ways of virtue or to stray from paths of virtue, which is to dwell in wickedness and to follow the devil who summons but cannot compel us. And so to go back to this, this question of, well, your choice was better or worse or, or whatever. No, 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 no. God has given us, we, first of all, we have to affirm that we live in the new covenant. We are in a time mm -hmm. in history in which the new covenant is active and it's radiant. And in that new covenant, God has decreed, ooh, I said it, God decreed that those who would choose him, who would say yes to the provision that is in our nature to say yes to, God has decreed that those would receive blessing and those who reject that and respond negatively to his provision would receive curses. This isn't about being better or worse. This is either following God's commandments, in which he told us to do, commanded everybody to do, mind you, or to disobey. Again, it's not about better or worse. That's only, like Josh said so beautifully, that's only in the Calvinistic framework, and nobody else is arguing that way. So Yeah. And nothing in the Bible says people are incapable of making choices that are better than other choices. That that people, right. that part of what was entailed in the fall is that now you're no longer to make choices that are more good than the choices that somebody right. else will make. Well, of course they are. They are. And, and so this would maybe take, uh, uh, I'll just put this out here and we probably won't have time to dive into it too deeply, but um, I would just be interested to know exactly how what you guys are saying would align or fit in with this. But one way I would, I would quickly go to, uh, you know, Paul's mentions like in, in Romans and elsewhere about how faith, uh, you know, Romans four specifically, Abraham believed and God 
credited his faith as righteousness. So he, he right. there, Paul's not even saying faith itself, the nature of what faith is, is itself a meritorious, righteous activity or action. It's, it's not something that itself warrants or obligates God to respond in a certain way. Right. Uh, faith is God. God is gracious. It's graceful of God to respond to faith in the way he does. He doesn't have uh, to. Um, I, th- I think logizomai is is the word there, logizomai. And what that means is he counts, and this, again, kind of proves imputed righteousness to be false anyway, is that he credits your faith as righteousness. <laughs> That's saying your faith is righteous. I count the faith that you have in yep. me as righteousness. Not you're really not righteous and not making righteous decisions, but everything that Christ did is now imputed to you. No, 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 no. Your faith, Abraham's faith, was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham's faith is righteous works, right? Because remember what Jesus Jesus said in John, I think it's 629, 630? Lord, Lord, they came up to him. What works must we do to do to please God? And what did Jesus say? This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Okay, fair enough. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. That's I would lo- love to dive into that more uh, with you guys um, at some point because um, I've I would like I want to look into that word credited. Uh, because I know people who have listened to my channel will say, "Well, that's that's different than what Jordan says." So how how does that work? Um, so that would yeah, that'd be fun to to discuss later on because I'm I'm interested to to know about the Eastern Orthodox way of of handling passages like that. Um, but yeah, I think there's there's man, there's so many directions we could go, and I want to give you guys an opportunity to share any final thoughts here. But we're approaching on four hours um yeah and i might yeah i might actually uh if you're watching this video it may not be four hours because i might divide some of the first segments but um there should be around four hours of this this conversation available somewhere to watch um but uh yeah so much to this this idea of total depravity and i do think that you know my my initial response when i hear that because that is such a common uh objection and stumbling block which i i get i i kind of i i think i think i can say i understand where calvinists are coming from when they have that objection um i really do uh but when one says you know what what makes you better you know what why did you choose and your neighbor didn't i just think there are multiple ways to immediately um i i hope that you can see from what we've discussed uh, some of the assumptions behind that, I think, as Josh pointed out, that really I think it's the Calvinist who, if not equally, much more so has that issue. And I would agree in saying it's it's actually just the Calvinist who has that issue um, because, you know, ask yourself that same question. Why did, you know, why did I, as an elect reformed person, why did I believe and my neighbor didn't? Ask yourself that. Well, it's because God loved you and hated your neighbor. It's because God made you better, capable of doing what he requires. Yeah, yes, you're right. It's all a grace. You didn't do anything. You didn't work or effort to come into the condition you are. 
that doesn't change the fact of what condition you are now in, which is a condition of being better than the non-elect. So I just think it's it's a little bit nearsighted to not recognize for Calvinists when they ask that question that that they have, I think, the same issue, a much worse issue uh, uh, on their own end there. Uh, and I, I also think there's just a lot of false assumptions about what that what that choice is, what the nature of choosing good over evil is, uh, and, and so on. But I'll, I'll let you guys, if you have any final thoughts here to close this down, and I'm sure we will um, hopefully do do more of these because I, I think there's so many other directions just with this one, with the T, that I would love to, to dive into, but, but we'll, we'll save that for later episodes. I guess Josh, if you don't mind, let me let me do go first because I got to run. <laughs> so, um, okay, fair enough. So I would say so first and foremost, um, yes, it was uh, logizma, that is the uh, Greek word there for for wreck. And, and Jordan, I would suggest definitely looking into that word because it's very very interesting concept, especially used in that context uh, with with God crediting that to uh, Abraham's righteousness, but. You know, there's one thing that that kind of comes to mind uh, when 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 we uh, talk about Calvinism, total depravity, you know, things like this, and it's something. And, and now I've been in and out, and so if you guys have already mentioned this, uh, then then forgive me. But I'm looking up. Do you do you, any of you know off the top where in John 17, and it's the high priestly prayer. Uh, oh, that, never mind. I, I just found it. Uh, so this idea that and we and I've heard it before. I've used this argument before, mm-hmm. and I found that it literally has no weight to it at all, um, because of what Jesus says in John seventeen twenty two. This idea that we are somehow robbing glory from God, right? And and then they'll quote uh, Isaiah, uh, that 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 says. I give my glory to no one, right? Yeah. Right. And so I just want to read as, as some final thoughts that Jesus specifically says that, and, and we're so quick, and as a Calvinist and, and, and a Trinitarian apologist, you know, back whenever I was a Calvinist, I used John 17, 3 and 5 so much that I never really read. I mean, I read down. Don't get me wrong. I've read. I've read the Bible cover to cover, but I never really paid attention to verse twenty-two. And my question back to the Calvinist at that point is: How are we robbing God His glory whenever Jesus specifically says, and I quote, "The glory that you have given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one." even as we are one, I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Jesus says the glory that he shared with the Father before the foundation of the world, he actually gives to those apostles and those who believe in them or in him through their word. And so you can't rob somebody of something that's a gift and so what we're saying is that no, nobody, That again, that's another claim that the Calvinist makes, that they're mm-hmm. the only ones arguing that because Jesus says that he gives the glory that he shared with the Father to us. 
And so I think that that's just a silly argument. Um, and and it, again, it doesn't hold any weight at all, given what I just read from the scriptures. Another thing, and then I'll end with this, is that, and, and this has been awesome, Jordan, I, I'm more than willing to have another four-hour conversation with you anytime. Great. I might have to uh, <laughs> I might have to talk a little good to my wife and maybe plan yes, a date even after the fact. Uh, but I would I would love to I would love to keep in contact with you and discuss yeah. this because it's it's good, it's good stuff. But but I would just say this, for anybody that is super into Calvinism that that just thinks that this is the best thing since sliced bread and that this is the gospel. I hear so many Calvinists say Calvinism is the gospel. You know, quoting Spurgeon, and. My question to that is, if that's true, if the if the if what you mean by that, which I think Spurgeon meant something completely different than what people mean today, whenever they say that, but but that's regardless. If you think that's true, if the systematic that is Calvinism, if you think that is the gospel, then are you actually affirming that for the first fifteen hundred years in church history, nobody, or, or I should say, everybody had a false gospel at that point? Because again, y'all, Calvinism didn't exist as a systematic until Calvin came along and put it together. You see, sure, there's things taken from Augustine. Guess what? Not everything, because Augustine even affirmed apostolic succession, the real presence. We venerate Augustine as a saint in the Orthodox Church. And so, do we say he had everything figured out? No, of course not but we still venerate him as a saint. The second thing is I would do a deep dive into history, specifically looking at the canons of the church councils. So we all say, we agree with the Council of Nicaea. No, you don't. No, you don't. You agree with the affirmation of the Trinity that was produced at the, at the Nicene Council, but go and read the canons of Nicaea. The ecclesiology is completely different than that of Presbyterians and Baptists. Again, baptismal regeneration is affirmed. The real presence of Christ is affirmed. Apostolic succession is affirmed. All these things that you deem as heresies, the early church believed. And so, again, I would I would encourage anyone. Now, you, now we can argue, did they have it wrong or did they have it right? I believe that they have it right because I believe the Holy Spirit did the same thing back then that he's doing today, and that's leading his people into all truth. But that's up for debate, I guess. Um, but the point is, do a deep dive into history and ask yourself, if Calvinism is the gospel, why didn't anybody believe it for the first 1,500 years? Look at the canons of the, of the councils, Nicaea, Constantinople, and, and just do a side-by-side -side comparison of what the early church believed and what Calvin believed, and you'll see, y'all, and this is what I did, and this is the thing that led me out, was there's not a match. There's similarities, sure, but there is definitely more things that y'all deem as heretical that the early church believed than there are similarities. And so I would just encourage everyone to, to do a deep dive into that. And that would be my final thoughts. Thank you, Jordan. I appreciate it. Uh, you mind you, if Tyler. I give a shameless plug before I leave? No, I was going to uh, let me do it for you. Yeah, go go check out Faith Unaltered. Make sure to subscribe. I'll link to their channel. Um, and I know you have you have more than one channel, so I can any any of those you want to link to, I'll put in the video description. Uh, but yeah, definitely check out Faith Unaltered. 
and uh, and I appreciate you having me on, Jordan. I look forward to collabing with you in the future, brother. Yep. Are you pleased, and I'll, Tyler? I'll also... <laughs> I am supra pleased. <laughs> I'll, I'll be a super say, lapsarian for a minute. I'm super pleased. Uh, there you go. Uh, to those who I know, there will be those watching this uh, who will be, uh, I don't know what the word would be, but hesitant. Uh, what are these weird Eastern Orthodox guys doing on your channel? I just say... If nothing else, just go go over to their channel and listen to some of their stuff. I'm I'm not Eastern Orthodox, but um, I'm I'm very in, intrigued to learn more uh, because there's just so much so much about the different denominations and branches of Christianity that I think there's just so much to learn uh, from from. Well, ne neither is Josh technically, so I'm the only Orthodox catechumen. Uh, and that's just a catechumen, so that's the first step in the into full membership. Really, is uh, is a catechumen, but no, Josh isn't. So Josh he's isn't still there. technically okay, Protestant. So I misunderstood yep. that. Cool. Yep. Well, anyways, just just to yeah. say, don't don't ignore everything Tyler says just because he's, uh, you know, maybe Eastern Orthodoxy is new to you. Uh, I just I just know that that will likely happen for some. Um, that's fine. I was hesitant to at first, and then I and then I started diving in, and yeah. I was really uh, impressed and and just just the worldview difference, like it, it was really neat to me, and so I, I liked it. Yeah. Well, thank you, Tyler. Thanks for being yep. here, J Josh. Right, final words. All right, bye. Um, well, I I have to say also I'm I'm very deeply pleased with how this conversation went. It's one of my favorite rituals at the end of our shows. Uh, Tyler checks in to, with me to see if I'm pleased with how it's going because it's become something that is a, it's a word that I use because it's it, uh -huh. when I when I come to the end of a stream and I'm like this went great this couldn't have gone any better it's like I am so pleased right now I'm so pleased <laughs> and so that's why I asked Tyler are you pleased Tyler yes I'm super pleased like yeah that's 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 Good. one of my favorite things to be able to say at the end of a stream there's very select streams very few of them that I haven't been able to say that I am super pleased, but this is definitely one of those times. This has been a really awesome Good. conversation. Um, but mm -hmm. the, I'd say as, as, as a closer, my final thoughts that have just been kind of stewing for me in the background, especially in regards to this question of, you know, me and my neighbor, am I better, am I worse and so forth. Um, I think, I think, and this is something that I've said to Tyler, I don't even know how many times in our conversations while he was still a Calvinist and tried to do this exact same thing. Josh, aren't you saying? Josh, aren't you saying that you're better than your unbelieving neighbor? And my answer would both be, no, that's what you're saying. But also my, my other retort to them, let's say the more robust zoom out view of that is in fact, um, the Calvinist tries to make an, a long, uh, a long standing and firm stance about Christ's work being finished. Either that's true or it isn't. And if, me believing or not believing has anything to do with merit or salvation, you are asserting, maybe unbeknownst to you, that salvation is in fact incomplete without me. And I would say the opposite. I am, 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 I am the one incomplete. Salvation is complete with me or without me. Christ's work is done. Amen and amen. I don't do anything to earn it, to complete it mm -hmm. as though it were incomplete, or to add to it as though it needed something else. Christ mm -hmm. has completed and earned the righteousness of his own. Christ has made a way and in fact claimed to be that same way. He is the way. The way is set. 
whether I'm on it or not. The way is set. So I don't do anything to salvation by believing or not believing. Salvation is what it is. Being in Christ is what it is because of Christ and not because of me or anything that I choose. So the assertion that if I choose to believe, I am somehow stealing glory from God and earning my salvation, that is to implicitly assume that what Christ did, sorry, what Christ did was insufficient without my compliance. And I think mm -hmm. that that's shooting themselves in the foot real hard. Because that, that assumption would still then, if they're going to assume that that is the nature of the choice, well, even in their systematic, when it is God ordaining that choice, well, that choice itself is still what is making, you know, what, what is meriting their salvation. But they would just say, well, it's, it's, not, it's not a problem in our system because it's God who is, you know, making that a reality. It's God who is ordaining, causing causing that belief, that response. But mm -hmm. there's still, you know, if you're going to assume what you assume when you make the objections to the non-Calvinist, you would have to then, you know, apply that to your own uh, version of, of the narrative and say that, mm -hmm. well, even though God is causing it, it's that, that choice is doing something. Our faith that God is gifting to us effectually is is actually doing the, uh, how would you word it um, in, in the way you just did? How would you apply that is, to the Calvinist scenario? God, God bringing about my compliance completes salvation because I am one of the elect and without me, salvation is incomplete. God can't fail. So God needs me in order for salvation to be complete. Whereas in my worldview, God needs nothing. God is complete in and of himself. It is me who is in lack. I need to be saved. God doesn't need me to be saved. But Calvinism would have you believe that salvation as a holistic package includes every person who has ever been elect. And if God fails to receive even one of them, salvation is in essence incomplete. Salvation requires me. It does not. I require it. You see what I'm saying? And then the other thing that 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 really is a... a, a, a I don't, I don't want to say a distraction, but perhaps something that, that is underlying the problem that most people I don't think bring enough attention to is God is not a mechanism. God is a person. God has a will. God makes decisions and does things purposively, right? God is not a math problem and is not a light switch. And when we try to treat salvation and God's work as though it were simply a cause and effect mechanism, we're doing a great disservice to God's freedom, to God's sovereignty, the very things that are trying to be emphasized. We're removing the king from the throne by pretending the king is nothing more than a mechanism. God is just the flux, the, you know, what comes in comes out like a computer. God's not good. Like, and, and I'm not trying to be crude. And I don't think anybody who's a Calvinist is claiming forwardly that God is a mechanism. But, you know, this is an internal critique, right? Yeah. And assess the language that you yourself yep. as a Calvinist are using when you begin to speak about when you believe you merit your salvation. Why in the world would you assume that? Because you're assuming that God works like a mechanism. And if I do this and put this into the computer, this is what is bound to come out and nothing else could possibly come out. God is not a mechanism. God is a person. That's another reason why I think all of this kind of fails on a fundamental level. 
we cannot play reductionistic games with God to make a math problem out of salvation. That is a mistake. Well, that seems like a good note to end on right there. Well, Fair a enough. lot to think about, a lot to think about. And um, hopefully this conversation has given you all something uh, new to consider. Um, it has for me. And as we've said, we will will definitely be be doing more. And let us know in the uh, the comments if you know if you would like to have us collaborate again. Like if you have a specific topic in mind that you think it'd be fun to have us discuss, or or if you like the idea of us maybe walking through uh, exegeting an entire chapter or even uh, book. Um, let us know if you have ideas for that or things that you think would be we uh, fun for us to do. And so with all that said, if you've stuck around this long, thank you so much. And uh, Josh, thank you guys again. Don't forget to go over and subscribe to Faith Unaltered. We'll put the info for that in the video description. So we will see you all next time. <laughs>